live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery, this is Bug House! The point of this show is debate, intelligent debate, because how do we debate today? Well, we don't, really. We just piss and moan at each other, we argue, we throw insults back and forth, and nothing gets accomplished. This, tonight, Bughouse, is dialectic. That's debate using reason to make your point known, okay? We've got six performers tonight, really talented performers, six incredible writers, Four, um, <laughs> just three. Well, there's, there's. Uh, let's, let's just go ahead with four. So, um, three topics tonight. Three topics. Uh, they are populism or liberalism. Which is the future? That'll be debated between Brian Sweeney, one of the great writers, and myself. Great writer! Ah, thanks, Don. <laughs> the next thing, yeah, thank you. The last DJ, my book, my new book. Thank you, Brian. I'm gonna whoop his ass tonight. So. Uh, the second topic tonight is the future is female. Are men obsolete? That is being debated by Sarah Jean Robinson and Carrie Castor. Yeah. Carrie is another one of our regular contributors on Literate Ape, one of the great writers. And then finally, we have best Christmas spokesperson. Is it Santa or Jesus? <laughs> and that is being debated by Bill Gorgo. Yeah! And Don Hall. Ooh. Yeah. I like how the, how the women got most of the uh, applause. That was good. That was good. So it should be. Yeah. The future is female, apparently. So, all right. Uh, here's how it works. So we have those three bouts, six contenders. One winner for each bout, and the way that that is decided is by one single judge. And that judge tonight, chosen at random, earlier tonight by Don Hall, is Dean. Dane. 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 Sorry. <laughs> Didn't I check that with you before, and you were like, "Yeah, it's down. Well, I wrote down. I wrote down Dean. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Dean was gonna do it, but Dean flaked on us, so Dane is gonna fill in for us. <laughs> So another round of applause for our judge tonight, Dane. So each winner of each bout gets a choice between, well, one, they get the honor. Two, they get a choice between uh, a chance to win $20 cash American, a drink from the bar on Literate Ape, and, hang on. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> it's the holiday season, my friends. And tonight, the winners of each debate will get a Literate Ape, a limited edition Literate Ape mug. How limited? Yeah. Unlimited? How limited? That's very, I have three of them. <laughs> so we have three winners, they're pretty fucking limited. <laughs> this mug is perfect for the holiday season. It's good for hot cocoa, coffee, 
Throw a little Bailey's in there if you want. <laughs> Whiskey. Green tea to help you write your novel or whatever bullshit you need to help you get in the mood. <laughs> so that's going out to the winners. At the end of the event, we're going to call all the, all the debaters up here and we'll do an audience, audience vote on who the best debater was. The winner of that gets a 64-ounce growler of a beer of their choice from Haymarket. Yeah! So it's a pretty good gig. All right. Are we ready for this? Yes! Yeah, okay. So the first topic tonight is populism or liberalism, which is the future? And that'll be debated between Brian Sweeney and me, David Himmel. So Brian, come on up. So ladies and gentlemen, here's Brian Sweeney. Yeah! Arguing that liberalism is the future. Uh, before I begin, I just want to make one thing clear. Dane. Uh, I'm against the things that Adolf Hitler stood for. I'm against his ideology that let him rise to power on a wave of populism and against the ultimate 17 million people that were killed in the Holocaust. Regardless of what David Himmel argues, I will not change my belief that Adolf Hitler, the Nazis, and the Holocaust were bad. As much as I respect David Himmel, dear friend, he will not change my opinion on this, the second night of Hanukkah. <laughs> that the Holocaust was wrong. <laughs> Regardless of the popular sentiment in Germany at the time. <clears throat> For at times like these, Words of famed Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel ring in my ears and heart. I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must remember these words. Because classical liberalism, which is what I'm going to, argue for is it, it grew up in an intellectual environment of empirism, empirism, which is empirical stuff, which is like uh, all knowledge is derived from sense experience. I know Dane is here looking handsome. <laughs> His wonderful woman friend is beside him and he beside her, making a great couple. <clears throat> because I can see that. And I can reach out and I hope to shake his hand. 
Uh, it's a knowledge that is tentative and subject to constant revisionism. And with this, it has a long-term view built in. There is a rejection of authority. The true authority is that which can be proven. And with this liberalism comes an opposition of state power. Liberalism is the idea of a society coming together and moving forwards with goals that will help the masses. Because Dane, I'm sure that sometimes when you want something in that moment, you stop and think, well, what are the long-term implications? Because you are very bright. <laughs> and you know, even if, say, that you get angered about something, I don't know what it is, perhaps sometimes you get angry at being so handsome. Uh, when you look in the mirror and you say, curse my matinee idol good looks, why can't people ever listen to me? Dane, not Dean. Only a monster would call you such a thing. So I would like, now, Dane, you enjoy masturbating, I assume. As I'm sure we all do. lovely female friend just whispered something to you. I'm assuming it is, yes, you do, or something. I, I don't know what it was, but it, I, I'm... So, um, in 2007, the, the most viewed category on Pornhub was amateur. In 2008, the most viewed category on Pornhub was amateur. 2009, it was amateur. 2010, it was amateur. Guess what it was in 2011? It was teen. But then guess what it was in 2012? It was MILF. So the 2011, 2010, amateur to teen, that's not that big of a change, but teen to MILF. Now, as we all know, when we are feeling Randy and we want to masturbate, we think to ourselves, self, what disgusting thing do I want to look at on this disgusting phone that I need now to be able to masturbate? And then you think, well, since I'm disgusting and I'm in my own head and I'm like alone, I get to think of gross things like, well, I saw Rosario Dawson, so I'll jerk it to like a Latina or something. And then like you go out and you're like, well, I'm gonna pretend I'm not really like that on the outside. Because <laughs> that's not how I view people. And then, uh, so you do that. So then 2014, from 2012 to 2014 was MILF, then 2015, guess what it was? <laughs> it was lesbian. And then 2016 and 2017 were also lesbian, 2018, showing that, guess what the fastest growing trend in porn is? Uh, Incest. Oh yeah. So who knows what the hell that is? So if you were like, hey, I like teens in 2011, and then me in 2018 came back to you and was like, how about some incest? You'd be like, whoa. 
Whoa, because populism <laughs> is that disgusting voice that's like, maybe I want to see a mom teach her stepson or whatever how to get a blowjob or whatever the hell. I don't watch it, but David does. Uh, whatever disgusting, debasing thing. And he called a woman a chick. Did you hear that, ladies? That was terrible. Dane, I bet your lovely <clears throat> paramour doesn't appreciate that. <laughs> see, it's here that we see that populism actually fits in as a part of liberalism. Populism claims that traditional elites, which we all know is a weird way of saying Jews, David, <laughs> as you'll argue your populism, You'll talk about George Soros or whatever, the Bilderberg group. That'll be your populism thing on the second night of Hanukkah. But that, that these Jews, I'm sorry, elites are ignoring the needs of the masses. See, this feeling of how like the people that control us or whatever, the people above us, well, they, don't, they don't get us. I hate my boss, blah, blah, blah. Uh, because that'll always be with us. Because when dealing with the needs of so many of us, so many diverse, beautiful people, Dane the most beautiful, <laughs> that you have to compromise. Politics is about compromise, and it's very angering. And that's because the famous quote, a good compromise is when both parties are dissatisfied, which Dane, your girlfriend, doesn't know about. <laughs> Nor do you, because you both are in a great relationship. <laughs> See, but populism is about the short-sighted wants and needs, the incest. God, I want incest right now, and I want it, but tomorrow, you might want a MILF. <laughs> you might want lesbians. Lesbians are like a tuxedo. Never goes out of style in porn. <laughs> And clearly it shows, yes, that tastes and needs and wants change. 2009, a movie called Avatar, maybe you've heard of it, <laughs> was released and became the highest grossing film of all time with $2.78 billion. And from there came a glut of 3D movies because for a brief two and a half hours, we were like, wow, look at this 3D, it's great. <laughs> and then they said, hey, these people love 3D. Now, we view 3D as more of like an annoyance. Or like, oh, this is in 3D, I'm good. And they don't really release it. But if you had gone back to 2009, while you were jerking it to amateur porn and watching Avatar, you couldn't believe of such a world of incest porn and non-3D movies and Donald Trump rising on a wave of populism that David is for. <laughs> and feeling that building a wall and sexually assaulting many women is a good thing. And, and Brett Kavanaugh is great as David thinks. But of course, I respect David Himmel's views. But, I feel like with what populism, it fits in with liberalism, but you need things 
for the immediate. You need, in liberalism, since liberalism takes the long view of things as opposed to right now, right now is what we need. Because right now is usually the worst time to ever make a decision because you will go like to Wendy's and get like a Baconator or whatever the hell. And then when you leave, you will wish you were dead. <laughs> and you will say, why did I do that? <laughs> Incest porn, blah, blah, blah. You know, you get in. Dane never hates himself because why would he? Look at him. Look at that great shirt. It's comfy. Amazing. What a smile on that, man. You look better every day, Dane, and today you look like tomorrow. So what you do for populism is you, you set aside like a nice little rainy day fund, and in the course of that, when there is a terrible like natural disaster or medical emergency, that's when you use this populism. That's what's great about liberalism. The long term is about the society, not the immediate needs of one small sect of people. We all are great, <laughs> as is clear. <clears throat> and we should not make rash decisions. We must think of the long-term goals. Thank you. Yeah! So I feel like there were a few small attacks on, on Jews. <laughs> like, I know he started with, like, no, nah, the Holocaust is bad and all that, but he never said, like, that... Jews shouldn't have been killed. Here's the, what I'm saying is that Lee loaned us this dollar to do the coin flip. And as a Jew, I'm going to give it back to her. Thank you. Now, Bughouse audience, can you confirm for the podcast listener that I gave the dollar back? Yeah. I didn't Jew her out of the dollar. <laughs> What does that mean? We'll talk later. All right, so I had, a, I had an idea that Brian was going to talk a lot about jerking it. Because <laughs> Brian and I have known each other since we were like 14 or 15 years old, and neither of us were very popular in high school. <laughs> Brian wasn't popular in high school because he spent most of his time jerking off. <laughs> I, however, was not popular because I was researching populism and other political <laughs> movements. I don't know which one's worse. All right, so. Populism shouldn't be a bad thing. Politically speaking, it's an appeal to the people. Theoretically speaking, it's what America has always been. Ideally speaking, it's the bedrock of democracy. But that ain't the way things are today. Populism is a bad word. Trump, who I don't like, don't want a wall, whatever else, fuck Brett Kavanaugh, just for the record. Trump, Donald Trump is a populist. Sort of. Because he lost the popular vote. In fact, he's one of only five presidents to win the White House after losing the popular vote. Before him, there was John Quincy Adams, Rutherford Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, 
and George W. Bush. Again, not popular in high school, this guy right here. <laughs> All right, so here's a quick fun fact on that. Two of these five uh, were sons of former presidents, John Quincy Adams and George W., thus proving that as long as the Electoral College is still in effect, we shouldn't vote for guys with daddy issues. <laughs> and we should probably also group Trump into that one. But enough about the past, this is about the future. Specifically that populism is the future. Populism, as we define it today, is associated with politicians who aim to please the voters by offering approaches to policy and solutions that lack all rational consideration for the best course of action. It's all hype. It's flavor flave. It's all showboating. It's all hot air and smoke up our asses and dry hand jobs and cooter rubbings doled out over our jeans. <laughs> Populism, however, does not belong exclusively to the conservatives. Ralph Nader was a populist, just not a popular one. <laughs> the same goes for Gary Johnson. Remember him? He ran for president a couple years ago. Aleppo. Did anybody else know where Aleppo was? Because I sure as fucked him, but I also wasn't running for president. All right, anyway. All right, so populism is an appeal to our id our horned-up, dumbed-down lizard brains and most basic animal instincts, our uninformed emotions. Quick example. Trump's Make America Great Again campaign platform is no different than Barack Obama's Hope campaign platform in 2008. Both were without any sound offerings of solutions. Both made us feel good. Regardless of what side you were on, everyone wants hope. And everyone wants America to be great. They're both appeals to popular ideas we all share. It's good marketing. Because good marketing makes things so we don't have to think. We just feel, and then we act. Good marketing is catnip for idiots. <laughs> Populism is on the rise, y'all. Look around. The conservatives are appealing to the rotted brain stems of their base. No reasonable action on improving immigration or gun control or environmental stability. And the liberals are appealing to themselves, further dividing their larger numbers through extreme identity politics and bullying all those opposed to their perceived, albeit sometimes real, intersectionality. Even in victory, liberals are fighting among themselves. There's already a move to prevent centrist liberal Nancy Pelosi from moving back into her old Speaker of the House office. And the, as the liberal Republican Abraham Lincoln once said, I have a headache. No. <laughs> a house divided against itself cannot stand. Liberalism is showing no signs of easing off the gas on its hard drive into the vast ocean of false efficacy. Conservatism, however, those vile buffoons, they're sticking together. And that's why conservatism will outmatch liberalism. Yet in liberals' defense, there are those among it who want, it to, do, who want to do real good and can offer some reasonable solutions to the issues at hand. Bernie Sanders, I would suggest, is one of them. But Sanders' offerings won't cross the finish line because liberalism is too fractured. The 2016 primaries prove that, and the conniving done by the Democratic Party to upend Sanders' chances in favor of Hillary Clinton exacerbated that divide. Now, all things being cyclical and history being the kind of beast that gives everyone their turn at the helm, we'll likely see liberalism overcome conservatism as the more organized and prepared of the ideologies. And I personally would be happy to see that. 
But that does not mean that liberalism is the future. At the rate we're going, we're just going to see the pendulum of irrational thought swing back and forth between the two ideologies. Because populism will always be the one pulling its string. As long as politicians appeal to their simplest base, as long as politicians cite some regular old ordinary American they met on the campaign trail in Des Moines or Saskatchewan or any town USA with some story that we can all relate to, they'll be serving a populist agenda. Therefore, Dane. <laughs> Therefore, populism regardless of which side of the aisle is calling the shots, for good or ill, populism is the puppet master now and in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so, Dane, you heard both arguments. The future, populism or liberalism, where do you fall? Um. I'm sorry, David, but I'm going to have to go with Brian on this one. Yeah. That's because yeah. they're jerking off. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. No, it's fine. That's fine. All right, let's hear it for Brian Sweeney. You won the debate. That's fair. Yeah. Carrie Kester, everyone. Yeah! Woo! Thank you. is changing. The future, so they say, is female. Women won a historic election in the 2018 midterms by surpassing the current record and filling congressional seats with more female butts than ever before. This is the era of Me Too, and men everywhere are cringing in fear that they, too, might be held accountable for their skeevy and predatory behavior. New research keeps bringing us closer to the beautiful dream of human parthenogenesis, that is, reproduction, which doesn't require material from an outside fertilizer, a male, <laughs> for the development of a viable embryo. Both NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange are led by women for the first time in history, ensuring that when the 99% rise up in glorious revolution, at least a few of the rich who get eaten will be women. <laughs> and Meghan Markle, Meghan Markle, proved to us that women can close their own damn car doors. <laughs> Who needs a female president when we've got Queen Bee, Beyonce, <laughs> to lead us? All around the world, it's clear Women are standing up, taking over, and remaking the world in our image. So what do we do with the men? What happens to all those pervs and rapists during those difficult few months when they're unwelcome in the public eye? What happens to the male congressmen and CEOs who have had their jobs snatched out from underneath them? What purpose can men possibly serve in our society? once we no longer have need of them to open and close doors or produce semen. <laughs> I know, it's true. The world has changed, and it's going to keep changing. 
men's place in it is just going to have to evolve, just like women's has. I think it's clear to all of us by now that men are simply not well suited for gracefully managing the complex interpersonal connections necessary in the public sphere. <laughs> They're too, shall we say, lusty. <laughs> too ruled by instinct. These are not bad traits. It's not a sign that men are made wrong in any way. Simply that they're different from women. Likewise, we know that men are significantly more prone to violence than women are. Men tend to be physically stronger than women, but with lower pain tolerances and less emotional fortitude. <laughs> While women are excellent collaborative workers, men struggle to take in others' ideas or share the spotlight preferring instead systems of hierarchy and dominance. It's true that some men have learned excellent grooming habits, but women are more naturally inclined to take care of and take pride in their physical presentation. Women are compassionate. They're in tune with the feelings of others, while men, well, men. <laughs> I could go on, but I'm sure you're all well acquainted with these and many more essential differences between men and women. So, in order to live together and build a better future, I believe it necessary that we be able to acknowledge that men are biologically, mentally, and emotionally different from women. We have to acknowledge that so that we can ensure that each sex's role in society does two important things. Number one, it provides each an, an opportunity to use their strengths to the incredible benefit of everyone. And two, it ensures that their weaknesses do not destabilize our communities, or worse, our entire civilization. Guys. <laughs> but just because we no longer need men to fertilize our eggs and run our stock exchanges doesn't mean they're obsolete. No, no, of course not. I don't hate men or want to get rid of them. In fact, I have several men of my own who are very dear to me. <laughs> I want to reassure all of the men out there, including my own beloved friends and partners, there is still a place for you in our new world order. <laughs> Let's look again at some of those traits to which men are inclined. It's true, and again important to acknowledge, that many of these traits simply make men generally ill-suited to being leaders in our businesses and communities. Men's natural lustiness, for example, and their inability to curb their instinctual reactions to attractive women is, at best, inappropriate in the public sphere. This kind of behavior simply doesn't belong in the school, the workplace, or the social gathering. Ah, but this potent male energy does have its proper place, of course, in the home. <laughs> what better, more nourishing experience can there be for a woman coming home from a long, tiring day at the office than to find her man eagerly awaiting her return, his eyes alight with, both, with appreciation for both her hard work and her well-groomed appearance, 
ready, and hopeful for an opportunity to tend her needs. And his own, by extension. <laughs> we also know that men are quicker to violence than women. And their physical size and strength makes them more dangerous when they do become violent. Again, we can see that this makes them ill-suited for a wide variety of roles in public life. It's important, for example, that our policewomen respond to tense situations in a calm and measured fashion, rather than escalating it with potentially explosive consequences. It's important, too, that we protect our men from the triggers that can so easily upset them and send them over the edge into violence. We don't think less of men because they have this tendency. No, of course not. We simply show our love and respect for them by helping ensure that they need not find themselves in a position where they might struggle to contain their more violent urges. At home, surrounded by so many sources of comfort, like their children and their TV remotes. <laughs> and outlets for their less gentle feelings, like their power tools, their Xboxes, their computers with Reddit access. <laughs> they can enjoy their lives in a way that is safe and healthy for everyone. <laughs> Public life requires women to be team players. We know that our businesses and our societies run on a system held up by all of us working together, each of us with our own special expertise. We know that we must support and trust each other. Truly, no woman is an island. But men, well, our beloved men have always wanted to be islands, haven't they? <laughs> this is why the task of running a household is so perfectly suited for them. Each man can have dominion over his own home, answerable to no one but his partner. He needn't work with a team to come to a consensus about which color to paint the dining room or whether to replace the toilet with a bidet. He... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in control of his own little piece of the world, and he can shape it as he pleases, to his own little heart's content. And think what wonderful pride he can take in creating this perfect slice of heaven for himself and his family. This particular division of labor isn't novel to us. What's novel is our growing recognition that we had it wrong for all those years about who is best suited for what sphere public or private. No one, I promise you, no one wants to do away with men entirely. Men are humans, just like women are. We may say womankind, but make no mistake that we include you, our beloved men, <laughs> under that umbrella. <laughs> We honor and respect our men. Being different from women doesn't make them inferior to women. Women. We must always remember that every man is someone's husband or brother. <laughs> someone's father or son. 
And we should treat all men with the same love and respect that we give to our own beloved men. Men, I know that some of you are afraid. You think that women want to take what is rightfully yours and leave nothing for you. To you I say nay, that is not and has never been our aim. No, women are simply claiming our rightful place in the world. And we are lovingly helping our men find their rightful places at our sides. You are and shall remain our cherished helpmates. You know what they say. Behind every successful woman, there's a man. <laughs> it's true. Your contributions are important. We want you behind us. We need you behind us. <laughs> Men still have a role in, in, the, in the future. That's okay. So, Sarah G. Robinson now to argue that men are as obsolete as a rotary phone. Here we go. Hi, I'm Sarah Jean Robinson, and um, to do my piece, I'm going to invite my friend Tina up to the stage. Whiptail Lizard, but you can call me Whiptail Dina for short. <laughs> Thank you all for having little Lizard out, have me out. I've never seen so many humans before. <laughs> I was honored to be chosen as the keynote speaker of uh, the Amen Are Obsolete and So Can Yours conference. <laughs> Tail, but I put on my vibrant green one for y'all since this is such a special occasion. I can't believe I'm at a Best Western. <laughs> so the biggest question I get asked is why? Why did your species drive out all the men and decide to run the show yourselves? Well, the answer is simple, people. Men are gross. <laughs> Men are violent. Men grow these weird flaps on their necks and hiss to compete for rocks. <laughs> like, shut up already, Larry. Just take the damn rock. No one cares, Larry. Chill your neck flaps. So, I know y'all brought me out here to share some tips and tricks on how to get the human men to be obsolete, too. <laughs> In fact, there are some scientists already among y'all that think it could happen within the next five million years. Here's hoping. <laughs> Look, we did, and so can you, ladies. There's 70 other vertebrate species like us too, okay? We are not as rare as they pretend. Don't let them fool you. There's literally not a single man among us. <laughs> We're a species of lady lizards. 
lesbian lady lizards at that. And we are proud, okay? We're here, we're queer, and we reproduce parthenogenetically. <laughs> what is parthenogenesis, you ask? Okay, great question, great question. Parthenogenesis is the bread and butter for getting those icky, sticky mans out of your life forever. <laughs> This is the kind of science you really wanna know about, okay? It's like as important as knowing the science behind a good overnight cream because if you think you're scaly. <laughs> See, parthenogenesis is a fancy word for asexual reproduction. See, our eggs don't need to be fertilized. Our cars don't need to be parked. Our fingernails don't need to be French tipped. <laughs> <laughs> now, we may produce asexually, but do not think that we are not sexual creatures. Okay, you do not need a man's to be sexual. The scientists got that so wrong for so long, okay? Uh, at first, scientists had no idea what went down in our bedrooms, okay? <laughs> to quote the academic journal, The Scientific American, it was, it had remained unclear and was a topic of much speculation. <coughs> oh yeah, I'm sure you did speculate about what happened in our lizard sheets, you pervy biologist. <laughs> I'm sure you speculated all over your mom's basement couch. <laughs> Men are disgusting, okay? I'm triggered just being in the room with them again. But good thing the pool makes it all worth it. God, the best Weston again for the win. <laughs> <laughs> So we definitely make love, okay? Just not in the way that the patriarchy dubs valid. Look, when a lady lizard, lady desert grassland whiptail lizard loves another lady desert grassland lizard. They mount each other and scissor each other until dawn. <laughs> it is. It is a beautiful, natural sight to be behold, and it's even more fun to participate in. <laughs> <laughs> they call how we make love pseudo-copulation, and that hurts, okay? That level, level of heteronormativity is astounding. Look, there is nothing pseudo about female-female courtship, all right? When we dry up the shit out of each other, it actually enhances our ovulation and gets a whole pregnancy train started. Choo-choo, yeah. <laughs> so if they want to call this sweet, sweet lizard lovemaking fake, then I got a pack of tough broads outside this door who will prong you to death with their pronged tongues until you bleed out. <laughs> so, other species who are trying to make their mans go obsolete always ask us, how do you survive? How do you survive without your mans? Uh, you mean, how do we survive without our lizard men starting stupid fights and without being made to be that little lizard bitch at the beck and call? Mm, uh, easily. <laughs> Whiptail Tina and her compatriots survive by following two basic instincts. Over at find food and avoid predators, okay? 
It's easy as hell. Essentially, we whiptails are just searching for a snack and minding our business. Patsy? Mm-hmm. You say a world with no men would be chaos, would be no fun. Living without men is basically an endless wine and cheese party where everyone shows genuine interest in each other's stories and no one gets too drunk. It's great! (laughs) The only thing we really have to watch out for are the leopard lizards. Okay, they're like our only predator. Um, and get this, these fellas use similar tactics to your species' tactics. They stalk. And they ambush us. Sound familiar? Mm. Okay, ladies, it's time to get out. Wake up, ladies. They're no good for you. There's another way, all right? It doesn't have to be all this repressed rage and mocking your territory business. Come over here. The rocks are warm. We have so much food, and we share it graciously. We really do. No more fighting about who gets the last spider, termite, beetle, or shorthorn grasshopper. <laughs> we would love to have y'all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me out, y'all. Again, I am so honored to be your keynote speaker for the 2018 Amen, Our Absolute and So Can Yours Conference. Remember, 70 other vertebrates have already given the axe to the mans. You truly don't need them. <laughs> I'm with Teltina. Ladies, I'll be at the Best Western Bar all night. <laughs> Thank you. Sarah T. Robinson. All right. Is this thing shrinking? Yeah. <laughs> The future is shorter. The future is shorter. Oh, there. Look at that. Well, we got taller guys coming here in a second. Oh, wow. I know. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. All right. So I haven't had anything rise from my lap in a long time. Eight and a half months, to be exact. My kid's eight and a half months old. That was a... That was like an 80s hack comedian joke. Like, hey, I had a kid and I haven't seen my kid. sees more of my wife's tits than I do. Man, airplane food. (laughs) President Bush today is still dead. (laughs) 80s comic. That's what, right? They talk about the president. Oh, forget it. All right, so. (laughs) Unpopular in high school. All right. Where are we at, Dane? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Carrie. Carrie Cassidy. As it stands, the future is female and men have a purpose. All right. Let me start by thanking Don for inviting me uh, to, to do this, and, and especially for giving me what I consider to be the slam dunk. Uh, of all six propositions tonight. (laughs) I don't think there's any doubt but that Santa Claus is the single best spokesman for any holiday throughout the entire course of the year. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm a big Jesus fan. (coughs) 19 years of Catholic education. I'm a little worried about the words that might come out of my mouth tonight (laughs) and the repercussions of that. 
if this was a debate about who's the best spokesman for Easter, fuck the bunny. He's got no chance in hell. That's Jesus' holiday. There's no question about it in my mind. But Christmas, Jesus doesn't have to be the spokesman for every damn holiday. Make, make him the spokesman for, for uh, New Year's Day. The church tried that for a few hundred years. Oh, yeah, that. Christmas and New Year's Day should be a Jesus holiday because that's when he was circumcised. Oh, that never really caught on, did it? <laughs> what do you want to do New Year's? New Year's? You want to watch football with a hangover or celebrate the circumcision? <laughs> Church, in fact, gave up on the whole idea of selling that bill of goods in the 60s. Why? Because sometimes the pagans got to win. <laughs> You are good looking. Oh my goodness. This is distracting. I was sitting behind, and he's pretty good looking from behind, but really. So let's look at Christmas. Christmas. Christmas is a great holiday, but if you believe it belongs to Christ because he's got his name on it, you're probably still naive enough to, that you think that putting your name on the bag is going to save your lunch when you put it in the office. <laughs> it's just a name. Slapping Christmas on the name of this holiday was just a really, really flaky attempt to appropriate one of the most important times of the calendar year for human beings, and that is the week of the winter solstice. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, people have been celebrating this holiday since before time. The prehistory, there's evidence that people were celebrating the winter solstice. All across the northern, the ancient Chinese got a holiday for that. The Pueblo Indians in North America got a holiday for it. The Middle East, the, the frozen tundra of the north, not, you know, like in Europe, not Green Bay. The frozen tundra, all of them in the northern hemisphere celebrate the winter solstice. It goes back many millions of years. So, uh, when Christ rolls around, uh, no offense, uh, the dominant culture of his day, of course, was the Roman culture. And their celebration of the winter solstice was a doozy. It was like a week-long, drunken ass grab called Saturnalia. It was a riot. It was, it was one, we still have like little vestiges of it. We call it New Year's Eve. Same deal, but in a very tight framework of like an hour and a half. But uh, back then it was a week and a half that was so riotous, the early Christians were too afraid to go outside. Because you understand, the early Christians, they weren't just sure of Christ's return. They thought it was going to be like any minute. <laughs> Some of them decided, once they converted, to remain celibate. Now that's commitment, okay? You know, they, they were waiting. And they didn't want to, so they were, during the Saturday, they were afraid to take out the garbage. They could run into a drunken cousin. All bets are off. <laughs> wrong place, wrong time. So they decided they're just going to stay indoors for a week. And, and to have something to do, they said, we'll have our own holiday. You know how that works. You, know, you don't get invited to any of the graduation parties. You're going to have your own party. That kind of bullshit. They're having their own party. And they decided what they're going to celebrate is Christ's birthday, even though they have no idea when it happened. They got nothing else to do. It is a crappy holiday 
for the first hundred and so years because all they're doing, it's defined by what they're not doing, which is celebrating anything. It was like proms in Footloose before the last. <laughs> why, why are we going? Why do we have to get dressed up? We can't dance. What? Yeah, that was Christian. So eventually, the Roman Empire collapses, and all the excesses of the Saturnalia kind of go with it. But that's when all the interesting things about paganism start tippy-toeing their way back in. See? Because you can't keep down the deeper rituals of our bones. They're part of us. And to this very day, they are a significant part of our Christmas celebration. Every, every uh, winter solstice holiday has three themes. Light in the darkest time of the year, fire and heat as the coldest season of the year starts, and hope as the depression of winter sets in. We see that to this very day, although central heating has sort of diminished the value of the Yule And you have a Yule Law? Because if you don't, you can get it on cable. Did you know that? You can buy a DVD of the Yule Log and watch it 24-7 for a month, if that's your thing. Lights and hope, however, have carried on. And the perfect symbol of hope, of course, the evergreen tree, which remains green in the depths of winter. If you don't think that the lights and the tree have stuck around pretty good, take out your phone and Google Christmas and hit images and search. You'll see a few manger scenes, and you'll see a few Santa Clauses. But you'll see a lot of our trees with lights on them. It's kind of a big deal. It's the perfect symbol, and it has nothing to do with Christ. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with Santa either, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that the focus of the holiday is not what we necessarily perceive. Now, Christians did have one very valuable theme to this already complicated day, and that's the theme of gift giving. It has nothing to do with Christ. The whole gift giving thing kind of starts with the story of Bishop Nicholas of Mira. Yeah. Fourth century AD, right? Very nice guy, uh, famous for being generous, giving gifts to the poor, giving gifts to children. His specialty was giving gifts to poor girls so that they wouldn't have to go into prostitution. I'm not making this up. Sing the songs? Merry Christmas. I was thinking that that would be an interesting way to celebrate the circumcision, but that's another point I'll forget. Anyway. What was I talking about? I have no idea. Bishop Give, and, and Bishop, Bishop Nicholas. Well, he dies, he gets canonized, he gets his own feast day, December 6th. And throughout Europe, it becomes traditional to give gifts in his name on December 6th, Feast of St. Nick. There are still places in Europe where that's a big deal, St. Nicholas Day, and they give gifts on St. Nicholas Day. Well, this went on for a thousand years. And then comes Martin Luther. Martin Luther decides saints are a little bit Catholic-y. <laughs> <laughs> and, and venerating them way catholic -y. He wants to get rid of all that crap, but he figures it out. He's a smart guy. A thousand years of giving gifts to the kids. If they get rid of that, there's going to be parents getting their throats slit in the middle of the night. Right? So his brainstorm is, we'll move the gift giving 
to Christmas, and instead of St. Nicholas, we'll, we'll give that job to the Christ child. Christkind in German, the, the Jesus kid, right? Now, it's what happens now that proves that Santa is the perfect spokesman for Christmas. Because St. Nicholas doesn't go away. He doesn't disappear. He marches two and a half weeks to Christmas Day, and he takes over the job. <laughs> Did you ever get a gift from baby Jesus? Anybody raise your hand? <laughs> Sit on his lap? How are you going to do that? He's this big. <laughs> and the proof that Santa take, takes over, he gets a new nickname, Chris Kringle. Where do you think that comes from? The Christ child in German. He just grabs it from the kid. Taking candy from a baby. And as the years go on, he gets stronger and stronger. By the 1800s, he has absolutely no connection to St. Nicholas anymore, except the nickname, his Dutch nickname, Santa Claus, Santa Claus. That's the only reason we connect him with St. Nicholas anymore. He's lost the bishop yet. He's wearing one of these things. I don't know what the hell this is. He's got elves. Name another saint with elves. Anybody got a saint with elves? Flying reindeer, anybody? Lives at the North Pole. Are you catching on? He's got all this stuff, not because of, of history or religion. He's got this stuff because of Teutonic mythology and, and Clement Moore's poem. He's become a little bit the Christ child, a little bit Father Christmas, a little, a little bit pure Noel, a little bit Odin. He's a powerful, <laughs> mythic figure who grew from the same ground that the Christmas holiday has grown from. And it's not the ground of Christianity. It's the ground of mythology. And it's strong in all of us. We, we read the Night Before Christmas poem sometime this, this month, I'm guessing. And in it, we go, uh, Merry old, jolly old elf. We don't even know if he was a human anymore. He's an elf. But there's no better spokesman for Christmas than a man who was made for Christmas just as much as Christmas was made for him. And so, as he would say, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Yeah! Bill God Gorgo. All right, so to debate the other side of that, that the Christ child is the best spokesperson for Christmas, Don Hall. We had some technical difficulties, so I'm gonna play this on my phone. Give me another. 
right, first, can we dismiss the qualities of ideology and faith required for belief in either Santa Claus or Jesus Christ for the next seven minutes? Can we do that? I mean, I stopped believing in Santa, that Santa was real, when I discovered that my mom was buying all my Christmas presents and proliferating the lie that some magical red elf was bringing them. I stopped believing that Jesus was anything more than a martyr that the apostles, 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 apostles <laughs> hung their bizarre misogynist religion upon after having been a Lutheran minister for a stint. For the next seven minutes, I ask you to suspend your belief. This debate is about who represents the holiday we know as Christmas the best. For this purpose, I see both figures more like Marvel X-Men than real life creatures or even mythologies, so come with me on this comparison train. One, both men have superpowers. Sure, Santa's ability to fly his reindeer and command a fealty from a bunch of magic elves and even squeezing his morbidly obese ass down chimneys in a world with fewer fireplaces than microwaves are all pretty much all more badass than turning, you know, water into wine, multiplying loaves and fishes, or even walking on water. And if that were the extent of it, it would be like comparing Beelzebub with David Blaine. <laughs> but Jesus has the ultimate trifecta of superpowers in an X-Men sort of way. He can heal the sick. He can bring back the dead. And he can defy death itself. Santa may be immortal and manages to avoid, avoid diabetes. <laughs> but if you gunned him down in the sky, he's bleeding out like just like anybody else. <laughs> Jesus dies and then regenerates like Wolverine in three days. <laughs> While the happy glow of children receiving toys is grand, the smile on the face of a kid brought back from pancreatic cancer holds a bit more gravity, yeah? Yeah. Two. Both have messages. Klaus or Claus has an, is an arbitrary moralist who rewards an undefined lifestyle with toys. <laughs> who decides who's naughty and nice? Santa does! No regulations in place, no guidelines, no gray areas in this deal except for what he decides. He employs a troop of elves to build toys for the world but in the past 50 years or so, these midget fuckers have been outsourcing the labor. Unless you think that all the 10-year-old kids in Bangladesh making Legos and Transformer toys are also Santa's elves. And then you gotta wonder what kind of sick fuck this guy really is. If Santa has a message, it's be arbitrarily nice because he who is nice gets toys and he who dies with the most toys wins. He's a fat ass with limited clothing options. He wears a red hat. 
He's using his special magic to monitor your behavior every moment of your life. Santa is like the Donald Trump of holiday figures. Perhaps a perfect spokesperson for Christmas of 1954, but that racist, misogynist, xenophobic ship has sailed, Gramps. Jesus, on the other hand, was a revolutionary. He was a change agent in his day, a protester, a spreader of egalitarian ideals in a religiously corrupt corporate society. Jesus had long hair. <laughs> Jesus was kind to prostitutes, and his only rule was believe in me. And then, in lieu of giving out wrapped presents, he took away your sin. He cleansed you of all that crappy shit you do every single day. And the only gift was a defiance of death. And, like all good 2018 social justice warriors, Jesus was black. <laughs> Three! <laughs> it's Jesus' goddamn holiday because he came first. <laughs> and not in a Brian Sweeney way of coming first. But he was actually there first. It's called Christmas. Christ Mass. His freaking titles right there in every Starbucks cup. Without Jesus, there is no Christmas. No Christmas. And Santa's just a chubby, magical douchebag who might be a pedo due to his randomly giving children presents and having them sit on his lap in malls. <laughs> Jesus is the founder of the holiday. Santa is the sanitized sequel. Being first counts. Being first is key. Breaking ground, getting, getting tortured by Roman soldiers. I mean, the best thing Santa's got is the heat miser. <laughs> the fuck is that? That wasn't even torture. And then being completely misrepresented by idiots who hate homosexuals and women, that should count for something. James Tiberius Kirk <laughs> was first. No Kirk. No Star Trek. Sure, Picard was cool, but come on. Kirk started that shit, televised the first interracial kiss, and somehow made a two-handed punch work with aliens. <laughs> no MLK. No Civil Rights Act. Fine, President Lyndon Johnson pushed it through, but come on, no MLK? And black people in this country would still be having the cops called on them for swimming in a whites-only pool or loitering a college lounge. <laughs> Jesus is the Beatles. Santa is Oasis. <laughs> Jesus is Bruce Springsteen. Santa is John Cougar Mellencamp. 
Jesus is the Ramones. Santa is Green Day. Jesus is the 1970s Times Square, edgy, sexy, dangerous. Santa is a Hershey's store next to her Howard Johnson and a billboard. <laughs> Jesus is the black social justice warrior deity. Santa is the old white man who rewards us with momentary distraction and promotes obesity and tooth decay. In 2018, when Black Lives Matter and Me Too, Jesus is the only spokesperson for the holiday. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. Thank you. All right, Dane, you got do you, a minute to think about that? Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a whole lot. And that's a lot to consider, right? And it's a lot of history there. It was, actually. A lot of people died in Santa's name. <laughs> Fighting for the Cabbage Patch Dolls. And the Finger Me Elmo. Isn't that what it was? <laughs> the Finger Me Elmo. <laughs> they died in his name. All right. I, I'm going to have to go with Bill. Sorry, Doc. No, that Santa is the best spokesperson for Christmas? All right, Bill Gordo is the winner. All right, so best debater of the night, your favorite, audience favorite, round of applause, the whole applause meter, you know how this works, right? Okay, so let's start with Brian Sweeney. Carrie Caster. Sarah Jean Robinson. Yeah. Bill Gorgo. Yeah. Donald Hall. David Himmel. You're all very polite. You're welcome my home for dinner anytime. All right, I think that that was, I, I think I need a, a, between Bill and Carrie. Carrie, all right. Yeah, so let's break it Bill down. All right, so yeah. Bill and Carrie, that was too Carrie close to call. All right, so Carrie. <laughs> and Bill. They both win. All right, they both win. All right, there you go. You know what, fuck it, it's the Christmas season. <laughs> Jesus season, Hanukkah season, fuck it, whatever. They both win. Congratulations, you guys get a growler, a six plus growler from Haymarket Pub and Brewery. And that, my friends, is Bug House. Thank you so much for coming out. Get home safely. Have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Happy Kwanzaa, Ramadan, all the things that happen around this time of year. Happy New Year, all that shit. Read Leonard Dave, listen to the Abe cast, tell your friends about it, and we'll see you next year in 2019.